Hello, I'm Dr. Elaine Wuerl, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome you to today's educational activity titled Global Perspectives on Diagnosis and Management of Childhood Epilepsy Disorders, with a focus on Dravet, Lennox-Gastaut, and tuberous sclerosis complex. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. This continuing education activity is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a jointly accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians worldwide. I also want to encourage everyone to join us today on our live Twitter conversation at CME Outfitters. We will be monitoring the Twitter feed and responding to the Q&A portion of this program. So again, I am Dr. Elaine Wuerl, and I'm Chair and Professor of Child Neurology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I'm delighted to serve as moderator for today's program. Today, I'm joined by an esteemed panel of expert faculty who are now going to introduce themselves. Hi, everybody. I'm Tracy Dixon-Salazar. I'm the Executive Director of the Lennox-Gastaut Syndrome Foundation based out of San Diego. Um, I also have a PhD in cellular molecular neuroscience, which I use in my position at the foundation. And I also have a 30-year-old daughter, Savannah, who has Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, and it's great to be here. Hello, uh, I am Samba Reddy, professor of neuroscience and experimental therapeutics here at Texas A&M University of School of Medicine. My research focuses on developing anti-epileptics and elucidating the mechanism of action of uh, anti-epileptics and also to study the pathophysiology of epilepsy. Hi, I'm Adam Sintek from Germany. Um, I'm a consultant neurologist and intensive, uh, intensivist at the Epilepsy Center Frankfurt Rhein-Main. And one of my uh, major um, research uh, topics uh, um, health economic and outcome research in developmental and epileptic encephalopathies, and I'm really happy to be with all of you today. Hi, everybody. My name is Bethany Thomas. I'm a nurse practitioner at the Penn Epilepsy Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, and in this role, I also coordinate transitions of care for patients from surrounding pediatric centers into our adult center, and also very happy to be here tonight. Well, thank you, uh, everyone, and welcome. Um, so I think we've got an exciting program uh, tonight. Um, I'm going to go to our first learning objective. Um, so our overall goal today is really to improve the outcomes and quality of life of patients with early-onset epilepsy disorders and their families. And so the first learning objective there is to really be able to achieve an early and an accurate diagnosis of early seizure disorders, including Lennox-Gastaut-Dravet syndrome and tuberous sclerosis. And I'd like to talk a little bit first about um, the definitions of developmental encephalopathy, epileptic encephalopathy, and developmental and epileptic encephalopathy. So if we talk about a developmental encephalopathy, they, that really implies that the developmental impairments that that child has is due to the underlying cause of the epilepsy. So it's due to the monogenic um, uh, change in all of the cells, or it's due to a diffuse structural change or things like that. 
And if we say this is a developmental encephalopathy, the, uh, what is implied is that the epilepsy itself, the frequent seizures or the, the epileptiform discharges are not contributing to impairment. So even if we improve seizure control, we're likely not going to significantly improve that developmental impairment. In contrast, epileptic encephalopathy really implies that it is the, um, the epileptiform discharges and the very frequent seizures that results in the cognitive and behavioral impairment. And so if somebody has a, an epileptic encephalopathy and we do a better job of getting those seizures under control, um, that is not only going to just improve the seizures, that's really going to improve that child's development and, and potentially behavior. In reality, um, most of the developmental and epileptic encephalopathies that we talk about in, in um, uh, childhood um, have really both of those factors. So there's usually some type of an underlying cause that leads to some degree of encephalopathy. And then um, in addition, these children have very frequent, often drug-resistant seizures, a very abnormal EEG with lots of discharge. And, and that also contributes to the, to the encephalopathy. And if we think about the developmental and epileptic encephalopathies, these account for about a third of all new onset um, epilepsy in infants, so quite a, a significant proportion there. And studies have shown that about one in 2,000 um, uh, infants will develop a developmental and epileptic encephalopathy within, within the first two to three years of life. So these are actually quite common conditions. And when we think about the early onset um, developmental and epileptic encephalopathies, we can think about those um, related to specific etiologies that, um, that may be associated. So certain um, structural etiologies like a, a hypothalamic hamartoma or a diffuse uh, brain insult. Or we can think about um, uh, that in terms of specific epilepsy syndromes. And you can see here epilepsy syndromes are really divided into sort of the typical age of their development. So an early infantile developmental and epileptic encephalopathy, that um, uh, comes on um, always before three months of age, um, sometimes even in the neonatal period. The former names that were used for that were things like Otohara syndrome and early myoclonic encephalopathy. So this is a new name that really encompasses both of those. In infancy, probably the most common um, uh, DEE is uh, infantile epileptic spasm syndrome, uh, formerly known as West syndrome. But another one that is also quite um, common and important to recognize and we'll be talking about in a bit more detail today is Dravet syndrome. And then as well, epilepsy in infancy with migrating focal seizures, that typically comes on usually again in the first three to six months of, of life. So very, very early with um, uh, interesting seizures that really um, start in one hemisphere and often migrate around the brain to, to different um, sites. So very unique um, EEG picture. And then in early childhood, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, um, uh, it's, it's a, uh, not an uncommon um, uh, cause of, of drug-resistant epilepsy, but sometimes it can be a little bit challenging to make that definition early on. And studies have shown that on average, it takes about almost two years before all of the criteria for Lennox-Gastaut syndrome are present. So sometimes it can take a little bit to be sure that that is the right diagnosis. And then other syndromes that can be associated with DEE are um, DEE with spike wave activation in sleep. They used to be called Landau-Kleffner syndrome or CSWS or ESES, um, epilepsy with myoclonic absences, and then DUCE syndrome or epilepsy um, with, uh, with myoclonic atonic seizures. 
Yeah, so we have three well-defined syndromes. I'm starting with the Dravet syndrome with a typical presentation around the age of six months. Um, the underlying etiology is the vast majority a pathogenic variant in the sodium channel um, um, structure, the STN1A gene. And typically, these children present with, um, with febrile, sometimes febrile, but mostly febrile seizures, and which are also sensitive to vaccinations. And then over time, other seizure types appear over the time, including atypical absences, myoclonic and atonic seizures. Usually, um, diagnosis is made um, until the age of 20 months, um, months of age, as outlined by the ELIE, but most of the patients will already present between 6 and 12 months of age. Be aware, if the onset is earlier than 3 months, that's a red flag that something else might be there. Then obviously another um, genetic condition is the tuberous sclerosis complex. Um, it's uh, caused by a mutation in TSC1 or TSC2 gene. They're both um, very important in the mTOR signaling, and this plays a part in cell size um, development and proliferation. What's typical from the seizure point, it's infantile spasm or focal seizures, and it can um, allude into focal to bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. Usually with an early onset, you see this epileptic encephalopathy, and then, but you have also patients with later onset seizures in um, early um, adolescence or adulthood. Very importantly, you will have other signs. So you can have multiple benign tumors, so-called hamatomas, especially in the brain, eyes, skin, kidneys, heart, and the lungs. In heart, it's uh, very important on ultrasound. Sometimes you can see cardiacryptomyoma indicating of um, TSC before birth. And then, as Elaine said, we have also the Lennox-Gastro syndrome, which has variable underlying etiologies. You can have a structural brain abnormality, but also normal MRIs um, with genetic background. These patients suffer from multiple intractable seizures, including tonic and um, usually other um, semiologies like general tonic-clonic, atypical absences, atonics, and spasm. Typically, on EG, you will see some diffuse sly, slow spike and wave pattern. And um, very importantly, it can take some time. Most of the patients will present with a full type until the age of six or eight years, but you can make the diagnosis up to the age of 18. All right, so let's uh, move on to a patient case. Um, so this is um, little Ella. Ella is now 11 months of age, and she comes in because she's having some ongoing seizures despite treatment. Now, her history, she, she had a, a pretty normal pregnancy and delivery, according to mom, um, and she was delivered a little bit early at about 35 weeks gestation, but was otherwise well. Um, she was uh, very well, in fact, until eight months of age, and, and at eight months of age, she developed RSV, and her mom reported when she was having fever that she would have some shivering episodes with fluctuating alertness, and nobody really made much of, of that. At nine months of age, she presented with a first clear seizure to the emergency room. She was febrile at the time, and the seizure began uh, with left hemiclonic activity and progressed to bilateral tonic-clonic activity. And that was quite a prolonged seizure. It lasted about 25 minutes. Um, the EEG was done the following day, and um, uh, it did not show any epileptiform abnormalities. 
Um, her exam was completely normal. Her uh, initial labs, glucose, electrolytes, CBC, things like that were all normal. And so it was felt that she had had um, a, um, an atypical febrile seizure, a prolonged febrile seizure. And so she was uh, prescribed rescue diazepam and was sent home. The following month, however, um, she uh, went into her pediatrician, and this time she presented with a right-sided hemiclonic seizure, so the opposite side of her initial seizure, and that lasted about 15 minutes. And following that, she was started on levetiracetam. She underwent a number of investigations, including an EEG, an MRI, and as well, she had CSF studies, and all of those were within normal limits. So the next question for, for little Miss Ella, what investigation should be performed to identify the etiology of her seizures? So I'd like everybody to vote and, and let me know what uh, they would like to do. So one option is a genetic epilepsy panel. The second is continuous EEG monitoring. The third is a PET-CT. The fourth is looking for autoimmune causes. Or the fifth, I'm not sure. So we'll let people go ahead and, and vote. So we've got uh, quite a mix of responses here. So a third of you said a genetic epilepsy panel, a third of you would do continuous EEG monitoring, and a third of you were not sure, and that's okay to not be sure. That's why you're here. So um, in fact, um, uh, for, for young children with, um, with onset of seizures, particularly um, with worrisome findings, like a prolonged seizure or with some developmental concerns, um, a genetic epilepsy panel is really, really important and very, very high yield. And in fact, many people are now thinking that a genetic epilepsy panel for such children is as important as doing an MRI. So the correct answer here is a genetic epilepsy panel. A continuous EEG and a PET-CT, um, those are things that you might want to do if you were concerned that somebody had um, drug-resistant epilepsy and maybe there was a surgical um, uh, option, um, a resective surgical option. But we know for Ella, she had seizures that initially affected her left side and then affected her right side. So the likelihood that she would have a single focus that one could operate on would be very, very low. So the correct answer here would be a, a genetic epilepsy panel and we would expect that um, we would likely find a pathogenic SCN1A variant. So we'll talk a little bit about the diagnosis of Dravet syndrome. Um, here is a, a diagnostic um, algorithm. And so Dravet syndrome is, is a syndrome that typically presents in the first year of life, um, sometimes even up to 20 months, but, but typically in the first year. And it affects children who are previously developmentally normal. So a lot of times this diagnosis is not thought about because people think, oh, they should be abnormal. But in fact, at the time they present, they are developmentally normal. And they present with focal or generalized convulsive seizures. Characteristically, those seizures are often prolonged and they can go on to status epilepticus. And they can also present with brief uh, recurrent hemiclonic seizures. So sometimes they're prolonged, sometimes they're briefer. Very characteristically, they are fever sensitive, and oftentimes these children will have seizures that relate to a, a vaccination. So they'll have a routine vaccination, and then typically when they get febrile after that vaccination, they'll actually have their first seizure. 
And one of the very characteristic clues is the switching sides, right? So a, a child who comes in with a prolonged right-sided seizure, and then the next seizure they have, you know, several weeks later is now on the left side. Um, the usual investigations that you do are normal. So um, typically we would do an MRI, we would do some lab studies looking at glucose and electrolytes and things like that. Oftentimes these kids do get CSF studies because they present with a prolonged focal seizure with fever. So there's concern about um, infection and all of those are normal. And so really we want to be thinking about doing the genetic testing early. Um, most of the time, um, we do this uh, using an, an epilepsy panel because that looks for a large number of genes. And um, uh, next generation sequencing is, is probably the way to go. And there are a number of panels that are available commercially. Um, a few alerts here. If you have a child who does not have fever sensitivity um, or a child who actually is treated with something like oxcarbazepine or carbamazepine and responds very well, that would be a clue against um, Dravet syndrome because usually the sodium channel agents worsen that. And also exclusionary, if you had a history of epileptic spasms or, um, or focal lesions on MRI, that's also against the diagnosis. Yeah, now we come to another case um, of um, the 20-month-old male Kai. And um, so here's some developmental delay already and possible seizure. The um, development was normal until that time. He made some verbal noises by no expressive language. He crawls, scoots, and stands with support, but not yet independently walking. And um, parents are reporting um, multiple episodes of staring spells. So you are already uh, suspicious atypical absences or um, focal dialectic seizures. On physical exam, um, this reveals two hypopigmented macules on the trunk. You will see it on the right upper part, and they are over 1.5 centimeter in diameter, and obviously no signs of scale or inflammation on that, and no color change when pressed. Sometimes it's quite useful to use a wood lamp to see better changes on the skin, but this is also a possibility to have a better look on the, on the skin. And... Obviously, you should also look at, at the eyes, and this shows bilateral retinal hematomas. And um, on the examination, you see some mild specificity in lower limbs. So you suspect TSC, obviously, on clinical grounds, and obviously, you will continue with an EEG and an MRI. And now I pass to Elaine for the questions. All right. Thank you. So um, the question for the audience then is, what finding would confirm a diagnosis of tuberous sclerosis complex in CHI? So would it be temporal sharp waves on EEG? Would it be a hypsarrhythmia on EEG? Multiple cortical tubers on MRI? Hippocampal atrophy on MRI? Or not sure. So, if the audience could uh, go ahead and vote, so which one, uh, which fact, which finding would would confirm a diagnosis of tuberous sclerosis complex? Great. So it looks like um, most of you had uh, chosen multiple cortical tubers on MRI, and that is um, indeed the correct answer. 
So these, these children often do have abnormalities on EEG, so temporal sharp waves, but that's not specific for tuberous sclerosis. Um, some of these children can present with infantile spasms early in life and may have hypsarrhythmia with that, but again, that's not specific. But if we see those multiple cortical tubers, that's, that's a, a, one of the diagnostic criteria that we see. Um, so I'll hand it over to, uh, to Adam, and he can talk a little bit about the diagnostic criteria. Thank you. So I think first to, to get sure, it's a clinical diagnosis which you can make. Obviously, a definite um, TSC can be confirmed by genetic um, criteria in TSC1 or TSC2 gene, but usually it's um, enough to have two major features or one major and two minor clinical features um, which are um, indicating um, TSC. And then obviously you will have cases of possible TSC only with one major feature or more than two minor features without other points. Very importantly, um, features like angiomyolipomas and um, LAM are major features that will present later in life, so you will not be able to see that in early childhood. So what are major features? Um, these are more than two cortical tubers, and then hypomelanotic macules on the skin, Congual fibromas on the hands, retinal hematomas, shagreen patches usually on the forehead, then cardiocryptomyoma, which you can already see on um, prenatal ultrasound, then obviously um, subentimal giant cell astrocytomas on MRI scans, subentimal nodules, angiofibromas, and angiomyolipomas and lump, which we will present later on. And um, other minor features usually confetti skin lesions, dental animal pits, intraoral fibromas. You should look at the eyes, the retinal achromatic patches, and um, renal cysts, total bone lesions, and non-renal hematomas. Very importantly, even if the DNA test is negative for a pathogenic variant, this does not exclude a TSC diagnosis. And um, in clinical practice, always have a look at both parents and siblings, as they might also suffer from TSC with a much milder phenotype, which was not recognized yet. Thank you. And Adam, you can make the diagnosis just on the genetic um, findings too, yeah. right? If you have the genetic findings. Yeah. All right. So um, I'd like to next present uh, the case of Sam. So Sam is three years old, and she is presenting to you with frequent intractable seizures despite treatment. Um, she was diagnosed with West syndrome or infantile epileptic spasm syndrome at eight months of age. And at that time, her EEG showed clear hypsarrhythmia. She had um, undergone um, uh, neuroimaging. She had had genetic testing at that time, and no clear etiology was found. And Sam has had a pretty tough time with uh, her seizures. She has failed multiple anti-seizure medications. Um, uh, she did achieve about a 50% reduction with clobazam, but never seizure-free. And her parents are reporting new episodes of unresponsive steering in, in recent months. She also um, has what they feel look like the, the infantile spasms, but these are now lasting longer. So they call them tonic spasms still, but these are now lasting even a couple of minutes instead of seconds. In addition, she has moderate developmental delays um, on exam. Uh, she has limited ability to communicate. She is not able to uh, walk independently. And her EEG shows diffuse background slowing. 
And as you can see here, she has this generalized slow spike in wave complexes that are about 2 to 2.5 hertz on her EEG. And so the next question, again, for the audience is, which of the following signs and symptoms is most supportive of a diagnosis of Lennox-Gastaut syndrome for Sam? So is it the fact that she has moderate developmental delay, that she has unresponsive staring episodes, that her EEG background shows diffuse slowing, that she has generalized slow spike and wave complexes, or I'm unsure. So which of those do you think would be most supportive of a diagnosis of Lennox-Gastaut syndrome for her? All right. So again, a very sophisticated audience. Um, the majority of you chose generalized slow spike and wave complexes. And indeed, that is the correct answer. Um, so that is a supportive um, uh, finding for Lennox-Gastaut. Uh, children with Lennox-Gastaut often will have diffuse slowing on their EEG, but again, that's not specific. Um, they can have atypical absences. Uh, they are generally um, uh, children who have at least moderate degrees of intellectual disability as well. So let's go through the diagnostic criteria for Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. So there are some mandatory criteria. Um, and the mandatory criteria are these tonic seizures. And the tonic seizures sometimes can be a little challenging to know that they're there because they can be a little bit more subtle. And sometimes they are seen only in sleep. And so unless the parent is actually sleeping with the child, they may miss those. In addition to tonic seizures, though, they have um, at least one other additional seizure type, and in most cases, they have many other seizure types, including uh, drop seizures or atonic seizures, um, atypical absences, myoclonic seizures, generalized tonic-clonic, vocal impaired aware seizures, um, epileptic spasms, and many of these children will also have um, recurrent bouts of non-convulsive status. The EEG has two very characteristic findings. The first is that generalized slow spike in wave. And so this is spike wave that is less than 2.5 hertz and therefore looks very different than the spike wave we see with typical absence epilepsy, which is three hertz or more. And then in addition, they also have what we call generalized paroxysmal fast activity. And that is seen predominantly when they sleep and often correlated with um, tonic seizure activity. So there's a number of uh, sort of alerts that you would need to look for and that might you might consider other diseases. So um, if you do a photoparoxysmal response on, on EEG at low frequencies, sort of one hertz or three hertz, and you see that, you want to be thinking about Batten disease. Um, many of these children will kind of take some time to evolve, as I mentioned. So um, sometimes it can take even up to a couple of years to recognize that they clearly have Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, although you certainly suspect they're going in that direction. Um, so exclusionary would be persistent focal abnormalities without a generalized spike and wave pattern. And importantly, Lennox-Gastaut, there's a lot of different causes. So you don't actually need to have neuroimaging or genetic testing to make the diagnosis. But those are really important tests to do to look for the underlying cause and um, potentially to guide treatment. So we're going to switch gears a little bit, um, and we're going to um, uh, look at how we can best manage these early onset epilepsy syndromes, really focusing on quality of life. 
And um, we're very fortunate to have um, Tracy Dixon Salazar with us today, who is going to uh, give us a bit of a story of her lived experience. Tracy, go Great. ahead. Thank you so much, Elaine. Yes, um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about our daughter's journey. Um, and uh, she was typically developing until the age of two and a half when she had her first seizure. And this is true for about one third of kids with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, that there's no uh, previously identified issue um, with them in terms of development. Um, she did have an ideology that we did not know about that was going on, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and then she had her first seizure at the age of two uh, and a half. It was a tonic-clonic. We had no idea that she was having a seizure. We thought she was choking. Um, and then she had a couple of more seizures. She had three more seizures over the next couple of months and then went six months without having any seizures at all. And we thought, dodged a bullet there. But by the time she was three years old, the seizures came back. Um, they came back with a vengeance. EEG ultimately ended up picking up six different types of seizures, including myoclonic, atypical absence, you know, spike wave stupor, atonic, all of uh, uh, many, many of the generalized seizures, no focal activity. Um, and then we started her on treatment at the age of three, and she very swiftly developed treatment-resistant epilepsy, which was her diagnosis for a long time. So everyone with LGS has a diagnosis of epilepsy, or in most cases, treatment-resistant epilepsy. And this is really when the developmental delay began to emerge, is when the seizures came back at the age of three. And, um, you know, she had this abnormal uh, in-between interictal seizure activity, this epileptiform activity. Um, she was having hundreds of seizures a day at this point, and the interplay of that plus her developing brain ultimately led to her getting the diagnosis of Lennox-Gastaut syndrome when she was five years old. Um, it's happening a little bit sooner in these days and ages because this was 30 years ago. Um, she's 30 years old now, which I'm going to talk a little the rest of her journey. But this is the point when the slow spiking wave and the generalized paroxysmal fast activity um, turned up. And it's really a sign that something has gone horribly wrong in brain development um, for these kids. And, um, you know, you can have uh, tuberous sclerosis complex mutation that evolves to also develop Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and many, many other genetic or acquired forms of epilepsy. From that point, um, you know, she was, let's see if I can advance to the next step. So here she was at five years old, and between the age of five and 18 years of old, eight years of age, she had more than 40,000 seizures. Uh, it took her three years to get the LGS diagnosis. It took another 15 years to find her etiology. Um, it took us a total of seven neurologists back then to get to the LGS diagnosis, many hospital treatments. Um, many hospitalizations, many rescue medicines. I mean, I, by the time she was 18, she was going into non-convulsive status two to four times a week. We were in the hospital frequently, many, many surgeries, very, very expensive. And she had tried and failed 26 different types of treatments, including medications, diets, and devices. And at that point, she's really just racking up diagnoses. She's got LGS, she's got DEE, she's got intellectual and developmental disability, she's got intractable epilepsy, you know, with unknown ideology. Thank God we got rid of, you know, cryptogenic, idiopathic, and, or I can throw that here. And she has this very abnormal brain network, which, you know, we believe is what really, uh, the LGS is what really just stopped her learning and her developing. And, and this really led to, I think, a, a broader impact over the rest of this time where she then developed, you know, there were the seizures all the time, 
Like I said, there were the clusters in the status. There was also the fear of SUDEP. She would get aspiration pneumonia a few times a year, um, you know, uh, many, many uh, ER visits. And then over time, brain matter atrophy. Um, but then all of these LGS-associated disorders started to emerge, right? Um, and it's basically could be summed up with her having a complete and total inability at the age of 18 to navigate the world effectively. She would go off with a stranger, uh, stranger you know, she would turn the oven on and burn down the house. She'd cross the street without thinking about it. She'd go outside naked. I mean, all of these things. So lots of behavioral issues, which I've defined here. Um, academic issues. By the time she was 18, she didn't read or write. Um, she spoke like a two-year-old. She had quite advanced language, but her speech intelligibility was very young. Memory issues were intense. She was thought to be functioning at an age of about a two- or three-year-old cognitively. Mobility issues, um, she basically couldn't dress, toilet, or feed herself. Sleep issues, including sleeping all day, not sleeping at night, sleeping all night, not sleeping, you know, um, excessive nighttime waking, tonic seizures. And then there's all these other issues that emerge. Constipation, which most of our LGS families have, low bone density, um, social isolation, weight loss, liver issues, hairiness, excessive gum overgrowth. And this goes on to impact the whole family. So when you think about, you know, quality of life in Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, this is really what our, I, um, you know, you guys remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs from, from psych class. This was really our hierarchy of needs. We had a very low quality of life when she was in crisis. So this was seizures, status epilepticus, pneumonia, and we're just surviving in survival mode. And if, um, you know, and then there was the and that and if you remember when COVID hit and we were all just sitting around wondering what was next, that's what survival mode feels like. Um, then, you know, if she wasn't in crisis, we were just trying to avoid crisis. She eating, sleeping, drinking, going to the bathroom, taking her meds, breathing. And that's just safety mode. And then above that, you know, um, avoiding crisis um, unassisted by caregivers is sort of what I would call coping mode, which is what we're in now. And I'll talk about that next. But um, that's where she does do any of those things independently. And still at the age now of 29, she just turned 30. So the slide's already outdated. Um, she's not doing any of those things independently. Savannah was a success story, though. At the age of uh, 18, we did whole exome sequencing on her. And she has um, calcium channel mutation. So calcium channel overactivation disorder, where too much calcium is going in through L-type calcium channels. We actually put her on a medicine that's used off-label um, in epilepsy at times, and it's used for high blood pressure and arrhythmia. It's a calcium channel blocker called verapamil, and we had an amazing 95% reduction in her seizures for 11 years and a 99% reduction in her status. She started learning again, and she now functions between a three- and seven-year-old. But, you know, during that time and even to an extent today, you know, what we really see in, when you think about quality of life is that the unpredictability of the seizures and that unpredictability that has on your child, but also on life. Can you go to work? Can you go to school? The frequency of the seizures. So we're not talking like one, two seizures a year. We're talking like one, two seizures an hour or a day in many, many cases. Um, and I think this is what sets LGS apart from, from things like tuberous sclerosis and Gervais is the seizure burden tends to be much, much higher in the thousands across a six-month period is what the REN study showed versus hundreds. And then the severity, the aspiration pneumonia, the ER visits, that leads to this chronic traumatic stress disorder, not post-traumatic stress. There's no post. Um, and then that then leads to these secondary consequences of inability to make plans, um, managing complex medical issues. It's a full-time job to manage all of this. 
um, you know, isolating ourselves at home because we don't want to go out in the world. And then that leads to even further complex issues um, where you have this constant stress overload on the entire family. The whole family is sleep deprived. So you have the child's issues and then those just become compounded and compounded and compounded. And so when we think about quality of life, um, you know, we're, we're just surviving in life. We're not thriving. And oftentimes we see when people come and talk to us about quality of life, they're like, how are they interacting with their peers? And we're like, what peers? We haven't left the house in, you know, months because there are just so many seizures and the medical emergencies are, are very frequent. So that's been our journey. Um, Savannah, you know, like continues to learn and grow, which we're very, very thankful. But that is not the case for most with LGS. But I think it just shows that you never want to stop looking. With that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Bethany, and you can talk a little bit more about quality of life here. Thank you, Tracy. Um, I think that you did such an excellent job at highlighting a lot of what I wanted to talk about with this slide. I think that we've all seen in treating our patients that there are so many different factors that can affect the quality of life of individuals and their families um, who are living with developmental and epileptic epileptic encephalopathy. Um, certainly seizure burden is the most critical factor uh, impacting quality of life, but it's certainly not the only one. Oftentimes the treatment priorities and the overall goals of care will shift as a patient ages. Um, certainly an anti-seizure medication burden and the adverse side effects that medications can cause can also negatively impact patients' quality of life. And so oftentimes as care providers, we're trying to find that balance between the seizure control um, and adverse effects of any of these treatment options that we can provide. Also important to keep in mind that nearly all patients with developmental and epileptic encephalopathies are medically complex and will have multiple different comorbidities. The medical health comorbidities such as ADHD and behavioral changes pose unique challenges for this patient population. And there are additionally um, psychosocial complexities, like Tracy mentioned, um, such as uh, these patients having various levels of functional capacity, which can change over time, um, trying to optimize their own independence, social stigma. And all of these things can impact not just the patient, but their family um, and their care team. And so for us as care providers, it's really imperative um, to acknowledge and address all of these issues um, and not just the seizure burden or not just the seizure medications that we're using to treat these folks. Um, and in order to provide this high quality care, it's really important to utilize uh, team-based care. Um, so in several of these practices, we like to use a physician care team alongside advanced care uh, practice providers, social workers, nurses, um, psychologists, and other um, professionals who can really help to uh, address all of these issues, uh, manage different pieces of this, and with the overarching goal to improve the quality of life of the patients um, and their families. And then you can see the bar along the bottom there. Uh, transition of care is always on our mind. Um, I work in an adult center, so I think this is something that we always think of for patients that we're bringing into our center. And certainly transition of care for a patient that's so complex um, is often a source of anxiety and stress for both the patient and their families. And it's really imperative for us to make sure that we're helping to develop a plan for that uh, before it's necessary. Now, the term transition encompasses um, much more than just the transfer of care from a pediatric to an adult center, um, though that's oftentimes what our primary focus is on. 
Um, but it's important to keep in mind that there are a lot of other things that can change as somebody ages too. Um, things like their um, access to services, their insurance coverages, um, oftentimes changes in school or day program. Um, there are, uh, depending on the patient's cognitive ability, there may be a focus on them increasing their own independence and engagement in their healthcare, um, and potentially a need for legal guardianship. So all of these things are going along um, and changing and posing some burdens um, at the same time as a patient is needing to leave their medical home that they really grew up with, um, grew up in um, and needing to find different providers. And so I think it's the most important thing for the pediatric providers to start a discussion and start that discussion early. What will transition look like? When will transition happen? Um, where will you go? What kind of people do you need to see? Uh, in some adult centers, uh, there may be a need to see an adult neurologist in addition to an adult psychiatrist, in addition to a behavioral specialist, and identifying all of those needs and making sure that all of those structures and supports are set up before making the transition uh, can really help ease that anxiety. Um, and, you know, we don't want to add one more thing and one more burden for these families. So everything that we can do to try to make this as seamless as possible um, and identify that competent care and making sure that the patient and their family really feels comfortable leaving their care home and moving on to a new one. And with that, I will turn it back over for objective three. Right. Thank you very much, uh, Tracy and, and Bethany. I think you really highlighted very nicely the tremendous impact that difficult uh, seizures have on, on families and also the very significant impact of the non-seizure symptoms of these developmental and epileptic encephalopathy. So the sleep issues, the feeding issues, the respiratory issues, so many of those. Um, and then also the importance of really carefully planning for transition. So we're going to shift gears a little bit, and now we're going to talk about pharmacologic management of seizures in, in patients with developmental and epileptic encephalopathy. And, and we know now that there are many anti-seizure medications that are used both on and off-label to treat these very challenging epilepsies. Um, we don't have the ability to discuss all of those just in our limited time, um, but we are going to review some overall themes. And as well, um, we're going to address some knowledge gaps, um, really talking about the, the only agent that's approved for all three of these, for Dravet syndrome, tuberous sclerosis, and Lennox-Gastaut, and that is pharmaceutical-grade uh, cannabidiol. And so I'm going to turn this over to, to Adam to talk a little bit about how we might approach uh, some of these DEEs. Thank you. I think, as Elaine already mentioned, we are using quite a lot of drugs off-label in these conditions, as obviously they are rare and there have been really low evidence uh, in the last 20 or 30 years. But now evidence emerged. And I think this is important to acknowledge that we have now class one and two evidence for newer drugs, which were studied in a larger population. That means they were tested in 100, 200, or even 300 patients for each disease. So if we look at Rabe syndrome, we have um, usually a start on valproate and clobazam, but then next treatment steps are already cannabidiol, fenfuramine, osteripenthal. Also, there's good data on topiramate. The drugs behind that, um, there's very low evidence of use and especially levetiracetam, parampanil, and buvirazetam might be associated with psychobehavioral side effects. 
very importantly in Dravet syndrome, be very cautious with sodium channel blockers, with gabapentin also like pregabalin and, um, and gabapentin, but also tiagabine and vigabetrin can increase seizure burden and lead to status epilepticus. In LGS, is, um, it is a little bit different. So again, in the beginning, usually valproate with clobazam, maybe lamotrigine will be some mainstay, but then we have um, approved drugs like topiramate, rufinamide, and newly cannabidiol and fenfuramine. What's also available with evidence is felbamate, but because of the risk of aplastic anemia, this is on, on the back side of use. And other drugs like levetiracetam and piracetam parampanol will have much more use. Also, sometimes sodium channel blockers like carbamazepine and oxcarbazepine can increase myoclonia, but you can give them a try. The same is the case for gabapentinoids and phenytoin. Um, data is different in TSC, as here we have um, class one data from RCTs on three drugs. And they are very different, obviously. One is vigabetrin, which was shown to be anti-epileptogenic. So that means it was used already in children with EEG changes, but not yet seizures. And um, shown that um, onset of seizure can be delayed. And maybe this will result also in better cognitive outcome. Then you have obviously Everolimus, which is the um, um, drug interacting in the um, mTOR pathway. It's an immunosuppressant, so with a very um, different adverse events profile, especially um, with um, sore mouth and, um, and um, sore throats in, in the children. And then very well tolerated is data for cannabidiol, which um, was shown to be effective in a, um, in a large study of more than 100 patients. Then you can also use other drugs. This will be mainly dependent on the seizure types. If you have um, more generalized onset seizures, then you might probably um, opt for valproate. Otherwise, um, any other drugs used for focal seizures may be used. Very importantly, these drugs have um, different effects on psychobehavioral and uh, cognition. And this is important to take into account, especially in this um, free um, um, disease entities. I think importantly, what's good for mood and psychiatric is valproate, rufinamide, lamotrigine, and cannabidiol. These drugs um, have, can have positive effects, especially lamotrigine um, and cannabidiol and filfuramine on cognition. Um, interestingly, all of them will have, um, will make problems with sedation if you titrate too fast. Lamotrigine may be a problem for sleeping, but um, on the other hand, you have the possibility to use cannabidiol on parampanol with a positive effect. Pregabalin may be of use, but be cautious because it's one of the gabapentoids. And importantly, um, drugs like um, topiramate, levetiracetam, and brevaracetam, and especially parampanol can have um, adverse events on behavior. Lamotrigine may be positively affecting behavior in those patients. Now I pass on. As mentioned, uh, CBD was first approved in 2018 for urgent treatment of three developmental and epileptic encephalopathies, that is Dravet syndrome, 
Lennox Gastrit syndrome, and tuberous sclerosis complex. There is strong evidence of efficacy in children, difficult to treat seizures. Although the underlying mechanisms of CBD are unclear, the identification of novel targets of CBD indicates multimodal mechanisms that include neuronal and non-neuronal, including microglia networks. CBD also has low affinity for CB1 and CB2 receptors, but it has other targets, including GPR55 receptor blockade, TRPV1 channel desensitization, adenosine reuptake inhibition, and then enhanced GABA release. Overall, CBD regulates network excitability and neuroinflammation, resulting in attenuation of seizure activity as well as comorbid signs. In addition, CBD has other actions within the endocannabinoid system, including anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, anxiolytic, analgesic, and neuroprotective activities, which might contribute to its overall protective effects. In view of such mechanism of actions of cannabidiol, it has broader implications with comorbidities such as hematomas, ASD, ADHD in children with these developmental epilepsies. A caution, the, these mechanisms are specific to CBD alone and do not translate to other cannabinoids like THC or even CBD in the context of other cannabinoids, including the whole plant extracts. Now, the important distinction between the CBD products that are available. So regarding the pharmaceutical grade CBD versus artisanal CBD versus medicinal cannabis, there are three critical differences in terms of purity, consistency, and accurate dosing. While there are other uses for medical cannabis, seizure control is specific to the pharmaceutical grade CBD only. The current challenge is to distinguish between FDA-approved pharmaceutical CBD products with other products such as medical CBD, dispensary CBD, which are widely available because of significant variations in manufacturing methods, quality, formulation, and composition, which could influence the overall therapeutic outcomes. Patients' responsiveness to cannabis products vary due to many factors. Pharmaceutical-grade CBD is a highly purified CBD, and it, has, it doesn't have any psychoactivity, has been federally approved for treatment of these three types of seizures. Uh, the evidence has arrived from the multiple randomized controlled trials and also from real-world studies. And it's a highly regulated product, highly standardized to guarantee purity, consistency, and accurate dosing. It is available by prescription through specialty pharmacies. In contrast to pharmaceutical-grade CBD, artisanal CBD is defined as hemp products containing less than 0.3% of THC. Therefore, they are likely to have some psychoactivity, and they are classified as agriculture products. They do not have any approved uh, uh, use for treating or preventing a disease, and there is no evidence for any translation of these products. And quality control, none, and they are widely valuable uh, in the market. Again, in contrast to the pharmaceutical grade CBD, medical cannabis, which is widely available from a lot of dispensaries, uh, it's a whole plant cannabis extracts containing a mix of cannabinoids. Therefore, it may contain THC and likelihood of psychoactivity. And the regulatory uh, landscape is variable and complex, depends on the state where the dispensary is located. 
And evidence is very limited because there are no controlled clinical trials, therefore significant uh, safety concerns. Quality control is often poor or none. And the legal states, legal status and logistical barriers depends on the state of these products availability. Now, regarding the long-term safety and efficacy of cannabidiol, as you know, cannabidiol has been shown to be safe and effective in children with the DS, LGS, and TSC. Add-on cannabidiol was associated with sustained seizure reduction for up to four years. Four-year results from this expanded access program for treatment of resistant seizures are published recently. Treatment response rate, that's the main factor for both A, convulsive seizures and B, total seizures are shown in this uh, picture. For convulsive seizures, the median reduction from baseline is about 50 to 67%. For total seizures, a median reduction was present between 46 to 66%. If you take a look at the overall seizure responder rates, a 50% or more reduction in seizures is observed in almost about 55% of the patients. And more than 75% of reduction in seizures was present in 40% of these patients across the time period. And seizure-free was achieved in about 15% of the patients. The most common adverse effects that occurred up to more than 20% of these patients include diarrhea to 33%, seizures 24%, and somnolence or sedation in 23%. About 7% discontinued due to these adverse effects. Adverse effects were more common with uh, concomitant use of uh, clobazam, which is widely used to treat these uh, uh, diseases. Like 33% of these adverse effects were attributed to uh, uh, presence of clobazam, and then only 13% in the absence of clobazam. Uh, note that uh, clobazam, uh, in the presence of clobazam, CBD does have uh, clobazam-independent effects because of its likely pharmacodynamic synergism with clobazam. In terms of the liver function, liver function enzyme elevation was observed in patients with concomitant valproate use. Great. And I mean, I think that the, this is really important. I know where I'm going to go back one slide. Yeah, I think this is really important from the patient and family perspective because there's really not a lot of guidance out there. I know there's consensus opinions and things on how to treat Lennox-Gastaut syndrome specifically. Um, I think we have a little more clarity in TS and in Dervais syndrome, but it starts to come down to these additional things. You know, when originally when um, the, this drug first came out, um, the families were excited about the adverse event of diarrhea because our kids are all constipated, right? And then this become study has been really nice because it's now started to talk about how you can have changes in non-seizure related outcomes um, without improvements in seizure outcomes necessarily, right? So CBD might have a positive effect on quality of life independent from the seizure outcomes. And sometimes that's what a family is looking for. You know, in the beginning of our journey, we're like, just stop the seizures. But by the time you get to the end of the journey and your kids had 40,000 plus seizures, you're just like, can you just give me some stability of life? The bar starts to drop and it's kind of sad. And so you know, some families want no hospitalization. Some families want, you know, if 
I, sometimes I think if you could just confine all the seizures tonight that I'd sign up for, the, like I'd stand in line for that medicine, right? And so it's really, this kind of gives us a chance to start thinking about what is important to families and, and how can we help? And so I think improvements in cognitive, executive function, language that all came as a part of this were um, really, really telling and give us uh, a level of guidance as families to think about what's important to us when we go along the journey. I'll just turn that back over to you, Elaine, now. Thank you. Um, all right. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tracy and, and Bethany and Adam and Samba for uh, the great discussion so far. So um, to summarize, uh, we're, we're going to summarize what we've covered today with our SMART goals, um, and we hope that you can apply these to your practice. We're going to then move on to the question and answer. So um, after today, we hope that you're going to be able to recognize and investigate early signs and symptoms of developmental and epileptic encephalopathies in order to achieve a timely and accurate diagnosis. We hope that you will routinely assess patient and caregiver quality of life because it really is about much, much more than the seizures. And so adapt care plans according um, so that you can address evolving needs and priorities there. And then importantly, educate patients and caregivers um, on the roles of pharmaceutical grade cannabidiol with a, with a care plan. So we're going to go on to the questions. And so just to remind you to, um, to ask a question, if you can um, select the Ask Question tab below the slide viewer. And um, if you want to direct that to a specific faculty member, please do that. Um, or you can just ask it uh, uh, general as well. So maybe we'll go to some of the questions. Um, and um, so first of all, maybe I'll address this to, to Adam. Adam, how sedating is cannabidiol on its own um, without clobazam or valproate? And, um, and also, can you comment a little bit? We had heard from Samba that there is a drug interaction between CBD and clobazam. Um, can you comment on how you might manage um, that combination if you're adding CBD into somebody who's on clobazam? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very important uh, question in clinical practice. Um, if you use cannabidiol alone or with other drugs than clobazam or valproate, it is usually very well tolerated and sedation is really kept to a minimum, especially if you are slowly titrating it up. If you have clobazam already taken by the patients, then be really careful because of this pharmacokinetic interaction. That means that the clobazam, especially the desmethylclobazam levels of the active metabolite, they will increase by the use of cannabidiol. And for that reason, and usually in my clinical practice, I will already discuss with the parents or caregivers to be, you know, to be already um, reducing clobazam levels when, once you start cannabidiol. I think this is important to acknowledge. And it will be probably even more a problem if you have a combination with valproate. Um, and be aware of that this interaction with clobazam is also the same for steripental. So if you have steripental in the treatment and already the clobazam levels are higher than you would expect it if you used it alone. But otherwise, um, it's really good tolerated regarding the sedation if you don't have this clobazam point. And I think last point, um, don't start both at the same time. Do one thing at one time. So start clobazam or cannabidiol, and then add the other drug. Don't do both at the same time. There's no reason for that, and you will only have adverse events with that. 
Very wise words. Thank you. All right. Um, we've had a couple of questions that have come through about barriers to um, to get insurance coverage for drugs like CBD. Um, what is the best method um, to, to get insurance coverage? Um, Bethany, are you are you um, able to speak on that or, or one of our other panelists? Sure. I'm happy to take a stab at it. I think a, a lot of it will depend on insurance coverage um, and knowing that a lot of these patients will have state insurance. A lot of the insurance coverage will vary state by state. Um, Many of the pharmaceutical companies will have their own team available to assist with copay coverage um, and uh, bridging access to uh, medications for those who need it. And I would say it, I'm in Pennsylvania. The, the state-based coverage ends up being quite good for these, but that's not always the case. And so leaning on the right supports um, to address that, um, it's certainly not one size fits all, but the, the support and structure is there through many of the companies. I would just. I would just add to don't hesitate to connect families to the Gervais Syndrome Foundation, the Tuber Sclerosis Alliance, or the Lennox Gasto Syndrome Foundation. We spend a lot of time helping families get access to their particular situation, and we've got, you know, 7,000 families all across the world, and there might just happen to be somebody in that city, in that state with that insurance that knows how to navigate it. And, you know, most of our families can usually get what they need if they have a doctor that's willing, but it is always a battle. It seems to be always a battle. All right, thank you. So um, the next one, Trace, I'm going to address to you. And um, uh, if you can talk, and I know you have, you know, your own experience, but I think you have a lot of experience from other families. So the, the difference in Lennox Gesto is, is um, uh, what you see in children compared to what you see in adults as far as symptoms. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Right. You know, in, in children, um, you know, I think that the, uh, you know, they, the, by the time we get the families, they've already seen quite a few seizures at this point. They've already got intractable epilepsy for the most part, more than one seizure type, right? And they're probably beginning to see delays because within a year of the LGS diagnosis is when the delays are present. They're not always there at the time you see the slow spike and wave. Um, we see the slow spike and wave in children, but that disappears in about half of adults. But then um, GPFA, the paracetamol fast activity, is present in almost everybody, not in the very beginning, but within, you know, about a year or two after the slow spike in wave, and then it continues on into adulthood. So I think that EEG finding is is um, is really prevalent. And then I think the mindset shifts of the family, you know, you've got a really young child who's having a lot of seizures and you can scoop them up. And their physical disabilities are a little bit more manageable. But then that child gets older and, that, you know, it's no fun changing a 30-year-old's diaper, right? It's not, you know, it's not as easy anymore. And putting them in a wheelchair and mobilizing them around and if they need oxygen or, you know, if they, um, you know, carrying around all these rescue meds. So I think the, the mindset of the, of the family changes. I also think that you have to think about, like in LGS, the ideology that you're dealing with. So we have kids who have Down syndrome that have Lennox-Gastaut syndrome because they develop seizures that then evolved into LGS. And, um, and, and they have a lot of skills, um, compared to some of our other LGSers. But we also have kids with like lysencephaly, so like smooth brain syndrome that have Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. So they had much more of a disability in the beginning. And I think this is why the ideology is so important because you've got the LGSs on top of the ideology. 
and and sort of um, putting those together. So you might see some really young kids that are less severe and then older kids, um, you know, that um, and then um, young kids who are like, you know, my daughter was like typical when she was diagnosed with it. So but the journey does change. And I do think it starts with what is it? Where did it come from? And then it quickly goes to how do we stop it? And then it eventually goes to, oh, my gosh, how do we live with it? And then it becomes, you know, how do I how do I keep navigating this when we've tried everything and the kids getting bigger and now they're an adult and the world doesn't know what to do with them. So um, so I think uh, keeping that in mind and that it's a journey for the whole family is important as well. Thank you. And you had mentioned also that um, sometimes the EEG does evolve, does change. And so one of the questions, and either you or maybe Adam can take that, um, is the definitive diagnosis of Lennox Gesto possible um, when it's delayed beyond the point of that characteristic EEG? So maybe you're not seeing that slow spike wave anymore. Or how do you make the diagnosis at that point? I mean, I'm going to let Alex talk about diagnoses because he's a doctor. And then okay. if you still want to hear about what we see in the community, it's a, <laughs> the Wild West. <laughs> All right, Adam, do you want to take that? Yeah, yeah I think a, a very important point is um, to not to leave anyone behind. It means if you don't see the typical uh, features on the EG, but you have, you know, some cognitive delay, you have onset in childhood or adolescence, and you have especially drop seizures, then this is very indicative of Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And I think you don't have to be definitely sure. I think if it's probable, then you should um, diagnose and then also to try the drugs approved for it because this might make it a, a big difference in this population. If you stop the drop seizures, this is a dramatic improvement for the families. So for that reason, um, don't be shy to diagnose it. You can use the drugs. And if they don't work, you can still stop them after three or six months. So I think it's um, for our patients, we should be very, um, very alert to look if someone might have an LGS and ELIE, um, um, ELIE recommendations. Um, they have put up the upper limit for onset up to 18 years of age. So they have broadened the access to the diagnosis. Yeah, and sometimes I think you can look back, right, and you can try and get EEG records, but those may or may not be available. So and I would just add, that's, we see that in the LGS community as well, where if you have LGS-like, you're, you're invited in our community of support because you're living the same life, right? You want the same medicines. You're going to try to get access to the medicines. And it, just because you couldn't find your EEG, your kid's, you know, 13 now, and you can't find that EEG that said so spike and wave shouldn't, you know, prohibit you from getting access and getting support. But even if they're LGS-like and they don't have all the features, they're welcome in our community of support. We are not the DEE Foundation, but <laughs> they are welcome over here. <laughs> That's great to hear, Tracy. Thank you. Um, and I have a, a question. I think I'm going to direct this either to, to Samba or, or Adam. And it's a question about um, people who are on valproic acid and um, you're wanting to switch to CBD. And so the question is, um, when can CBD be used after stopping valproate or can you start it together with valproate? And I think um, uh, talking a little bit about the, the potential transaminitis that sometimes we can see a little bit more commonly with that. So um, I don't know, Sandra, if you want to address that or, or Adam? Yeah, uh, I think... Uh... My understanding is that uh, that uh, the liver enzyme induction happens if a valproate is already stabilized. Uh, so if you're adding, definitely CBD is an add-on. So if you're adding patients who are already taking um, 
wall create, uh, uh, there is a possibility of uh, some substantial uh, enzyme induction. But uh, uh, the clinical significance will all differ to Adam to, to comment on that. Yeah, I, th I think it's quite easy. Um, if you stay below 10 milligrams per kilogram, even from the RCTs, but also from my clinical practice, you will mostly don't see any liver enzymes elevation. So if you start slow, don't worry about that. You, you, you make the, the labs and then everything will be fine. I think you have to be careful if you keep valproate and you increase uh, cannabidiol up to 20 milligrams per kilogram, then look at the liver enzymes, but up to 10, which is the normal dosage, everything will be fine. And I think importantly, right, it's shown elevated transaminases, but nobody has nobody has uh, gone into liver failure. So I think it's, it's it seems to be an isolated elevated transaminases, and they usually come down to normal again. So um, we're just actually about out of time. So I'd like to thank our panel for a great discussion. And I'd like to thank the audience today for, for being so engaged and sending in those wonderful questions. Um, to receive credit for today's activity, um, please complete the post-test and evaluation and click on the Request Credit tab. And don't forget to visit the Virtual Education Hub at cmeoutfitters.com for more free resources and education for healthcare professionals and patients. Thank you and have a great night. <laughs>